Welcome to Unfuck Your Head. I am your host, Kat Jordan. It's time to take action, get out of bed, smell the new day, and unfuck your head. Our guest today is world-renowned transformational interventionalist, recovery coach, and treatment strategist, Ricard Elmore. What a title. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. I really appreciate you coming on this early in the morning, and I know you're on the uh, West Coast, so it's a bit earlier (laughs) for you Mm -hmm. than it is for me. and so, uh, you know, I want to hear a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm Ricard Elmore, and I'm a transformational uh, interventionist and recovery coach. And what I do is help people live better lives or live a life that's worth living. Yeah, that's pretty direct <laughs> and <laughs> encompasses, oh, yeah. I think, our 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 goal, right, of what Unfuck Your Head is doing, and it sounds like also, and we'll get to this in a little bit, what you're doing. Yeah, you know, there's so many people that are focused around the struggle, and, you know, I had such a a depth of pain and suffering that I really don't want to spend a lot of time in knowing more about that. I would rather know more about a solution or an opportunity to move towards something I want instead of just keep having to dig the hole of how bad I was traumatized or how much harm I caused myself or others. I mean, sometimes it's just deafening to anything, you know, meaning you can't hear anything when people keep wanting to bring up all of your trials or all of your pains, you know, you're more driven towards to what makes you feel good. That's why, that's why people are suffering so much anyway, because they don't feel good. They want to consume something that feels good. So hopefully the conversation will cause people to feel better. Absolutely. And and to your point, you know, my experience in working with other people for the podcast is to really share, you know, their life, their struggles. Um, and in, not in a way of drudging up the past and, you know, reliving some things that have been pretty horrific because that doesn't necessarily, you know, um, bode well for something sure. as kind of lighthearted as we do want Unfuck Your Head to be, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But I think it would be helpful for our listeners to understand maybe just some snippets. Understand, yeah. Yeah, about where you've come from um, and what your experiences are. Because I know, certainly for me, when I have been able to align with not just my friends or family, but even my own clients about the real existence that we have all struggled um, really Mm -hmm. allows people to feel more connected and feel that they can be vulnerable because then they they look across to you and say, yes, you are a fellow warrior. Um, There isn't, you know, there isn't this hierarchy of like, oh, she's, she's never been harmed. She's never struggled. Um, And so how does she really know that these interventions work if she, she herself or he himself haven't really done the like the deep painful work right right yeah well i appreciate that and thanks for the clarity because you know i oftentimes don't talk about some of the stuff that i'm going to say today because you know not everybody could understand those experiences they might be able to understand the emotional state that sort of comes from those experiences but you know my my direct experience started uh at a young age at learning how to stuff down my feelings or my emotions and really play to the different variables. I had, uh, um, uh, I lived with my dad. My mom wasn't there. My grandparents took care of me. So at a young age, I learned 
that each adult had their own objective of how they needed to love and take care of me. And I, my job was to determine which one I was supposed to be the right person for. Uh, And that, you know, has taken a lot of work to figure out, you know, when I was 14 years old, my father died. And that impact of my father passing away really is still affecting me now. And, you know, we're taught it's, it's been a long period of time um, uh, 30 years ago. So, you know, even though it's been 30 years ago, the effects of it has to be where I am today. But in the middle of all of that, I, you know, I, I was first had my diagnosis at 12. Uh, moving into uh, 14, I had all kinds of diagnosis. I was on all, all kinds of different medications. They had me on 500 milligrams of Thorazine three times a day just to keep me into a balanced, calm state. Wow. And every day that I took that medication, I wanted to die. Wow. And it was so painful to be inside of me because, you know, I ended up that way from the way I was treated. I, I, would, I would say that from all of the physical, the mental, the emotional abuse that I had went through, had got me to a point where I didn't know how to do anything else but try to get away from who I was and what was going on with me. And it was horrific. And coming out of that, you know, I was in and out of mental health institutions. And, you know, from basically 12 to 22, I was I was just back to back in some sort of... And I, I guess I don't talk about the drugs as much because to me, you know, it was primarily a mental health problem. Right meaning I wouldn't consume anything at that rate to harm myself unless I was trying to get away from something that was killing me. But, and, you know, people wanted to talk about what happened in my past and I would lose my mind because they were already in the wrong direction and we haven't even started yet, you know, and that was my adolescent mind, which was, I need this to be resolved immediately. Right. And this is where consumption, you know, this is where drugs started coming in. And then of course, drugs became the problem because now they're their own issue because the effects of using drugs and, you know, I slept on the street and had no place to go and, you know, felt hopeless, wanted to die over and over and over again, even after recovery. Until I was 22, I was given the opportunity to get in recovery. All I had to do is uh, work these steps and, and my whole life was going to get better. And I was blown away because I had never even heard of any 12-step recovery up until that point. Never even had hurt. So here I am at 22 for the first time ever hearing about it. I know that that's not something that's available for people today for the most part. Thankfully, right. But for me, right. And for me, I was like, okay, well, let's go do this. And I had great success. You know, I, 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 I felt really good right away. I had no problem staying in a total abstinence state. I was able to engage. I started working. I was managing a nonprofit. We had 110 clients. Um, I started working for a therapeutic community, became a primary care counselor, starting to go to school to get my certifications and work towards my degree. And that was so going so well that I moved to Malibu, invested in a treatment center, started doing companion work for the film and the music industry. So I got to travel all around the world with you know, incredibly amazing human beings. And what I found out was just that, they're human beings who suffer too. Right. Who actually have no privacy, that no matter what people say, they'll give up their story because, you know, people need to be accepted so bad, they'll share information even if it's against confidentiality. You know, back then we really didn't have any confidentiality in place because who was doing companion work in 1997? Right. Me. <laughs> and, who, and who was traveling the world in 2000, you know, uh, with people around the world? And so there wasn't very many people. Now we have a different model and there's, there's different people engaging. But about nine years into my recovery, which wasn't totally absent, the first two years I had a number of regressions. I got into a relationship right away. She dropped me on my head. I panicked, and the only thing I knew how to relieve the pain was consuming. Right. And I went to consume, and it didn't make me feel good. It, it made me feel like I had lost hope again. And so coming out of that, you know, uh, 
almost seven, just a little bit over seven years of recovery, I had a relapse and was determined clinically dead. It's actually coming up on 15 years right now. This happened on 5-15-05. Wow. And I woke up from that near death overdose. This was the third time in my life had I had an overdose like this. Okay. And happened to be the third time in my life had I got out of the hospital on my birthday um, from that same exact event. So when I woke up from that, it was really, you know, I've had all of these deep emotions. I never felt worse than when I woke up from that with all the people around me that just wanted me to be alive. And they wanted me to be alive so well that their love that they thought they were giving me was pain that was pouring into me because of them suffering my loss while I was still here. And I just, I, you know, literally was yelling and screaming at people to get out of here. And they all thought something was wrong with me. And I talked to the psychiatrist and I said, listen, I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm clear that this isn't because I'm an alcoholic or an addict. You know, this is a deep rooted thing that somehow my psyche or my, my being felt like it needed to consume something to almost death. And that isn't from an alcoholism standpoint. I just almost had nine years of recovery, a couple of re- uh, regressions in the first two years, but the last seven years have had all this incredible stuff. So I woke up from that and I started, you know, I already had clinical experience. I knew how to um, do treatment. I knew how to do a caseload, write a psychosocial, do all of these different things. I started looking into more systemic systems because right. I wanted to find out how far could I come back from where I was. And so, Coming up on 15 years now, this has actually been the, the best frame of my life. My recovery has been a non-12-step style recovery, engaging in solutions and allowing me to have the best opportunity I could have from having all of that clinical experience and having all that history. You know, listen, 12-step for me was an environment that really secured my relationships, my safety, and my engagements with how to deal with myself in conflict and community. Right. Um, I don't see that so much available for most people now because most of the treatment centers, uh, you know, sort of make people go to, to 12-step programs and it's, it's a little conflictive. And then, you know, the other thing about 12-step communities is they are the biggest community. And, you know, I'm, I'm over here trying to build a community myself because 12-step's not my thing, but we don't have another big community like that. So it's really... You know, it's hard for some of the people that are out there that sort of want to be around community, want to be in recovery, want to be in health and care and well-being, but don't really have a community to go to that doesn't have that language. Because we also know that that language could be harmful to a person's well-being just, you know, in that particular structure. Right. And it sounded like, you know, at at that point in your life when you found the 12-step program, it was what you needed at that time because prior to that as as I'm hearing you talk about your story is that you know when you were going to therapy prior to the 12th step it wasn't resolving or helping you feel empowered to take action in the present they wanted to revisit your past and and you weren't at that place yet so having had access to the 12th step program at that time gave you direction gave you a community gave you steps to take and now it sounds like as you've come further out, recognizing that that's not for certainly not for you and, and likely for a lot of other people, not necessarily enough to sustain long term recovery. Right. And so it sounds like what you're stumbling upon in this this community that I'm really interested to hear um, is what would constitute as the next step in providing people long-term recovery and what that needs to look like for people right well yeah the you know when i first came out of that in 2005 i went back to 12-step because my community was a 12-step supported community right and if i didn't go back every i would get calls from 15 or 20 people if i didn't show up to a meeting concerned about my life right and on on the surface it seems like everybody cares but in the pressure of coming out of such a desperate state, you know, almost dead from an overdose. Um, it's painful that you can't catch a break. And so I, I basically went back to satisfy everybody else with the intention of, of building a healthy, it's sort of the idea was 
this was the basic idea is what you would, that I would teach somebody. And listen, you can't get one job. You can't quit one job before you get another job. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Like right. if you're going to move to another job, you get another, you, you set the next job up first, you give in your notice and then you, you, so I took the same approach with 12 step. I wasn't going to give my notice because I, because everybody would have pointed at me and said, Oh, you're, you know, you're not going to make it is basically what's said. But I was clear enough about the work I wanted to do, which got me into working in systemic systems. I wanted to find out a little bit further about how well I could actually be and how many generations could I do the work for today? You know, like, you know, if I do the work today, can I pass down this transformation to my children, therefore my grandchildren? Right. Right. And, you know, luckily for me, I was exposed to treatment at a very young age because of all of the conflict, right? Because right. unless you have conflict, you can't get help. Well, we now know all the people that didn't get help that didn't have any conflict are the people that are teaching your teaching their children how to be in these positions because they've never gotten any help because right. we're not in the 30s anymore, right. right? We're in this, like me and you are here right now where we both are in the world and that was definitely not happening in 1935, right? Absolutely not, right. So tell me a little bit more about this uh, systemic approach and how you kind of stumbled mm -hmm. upon that. Well, looking at intervention styles, you know, you know, coming from a, you know, I've worked at a therapeutic community in downtown LA named Walden House. And my manager at the time was Wayne Garcia. And this guy was just, he was just a great leader, a great teacher and knew how to, teach people to change behavior, whether you're a client, you're a staff, or whoever you were. And these were all government contracts at the Department of Corrections. So the job was to convince people that were living in that kind of a lifestyle that there's a better way and that there was hope and that we could slow down this 85% recidivism rate yeah. within 90 days of, of, of departure back into the community. 85% of the people are already on their way back based in, on behavior. In 90 days. So how do we... In 90 days, right, wow. in California. Yeah. And it caused the California Department of Corrections to change their name to Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Yeah. Because up until that point, you're, you're not supposed to be punished. You're supposed to be rehabilitated for your crimes. You know, if, you want, if we want you back in society, we want to help you learn content and information to cause your success, not no information in the communities, the people that are in there with you, and then you come out with more great stories of how to not make it again. Right, right. right. So, so that, that work really opened me up of the things that you could actually do and to change somebody with, you know, because the therapeutic community was non 12 step based. So we talked about behavioral change and how we could engage you into a process of change without needing you to have, you know, you know, some of the terminology is in order to be accepted in, re in most recovery models, you need to either be an alcoholic or an addict. And there's these terms that effectively are, you know, people are not feeling accepted by, but they're the same terms that took people out of mental health institutions, right? Right, because the they were, the the convincing of the medical model is these people that are suffering through consumption are not mental health patients. They're people that need help that are suffering through a pain, right? right? And you know, I don't know if we all know, but I know that substance use disorder is a primary mental health condition, but not from a psychiatric. Um, point right you know because you know there's a, there's a difference between somebody that has a psychiatric condition or some sort of um not to get lost in the language but you know not everybody is going to be an addict or an alcoholic and, and people that have all of these diagnoses are you know oftentimes misdiagnosed and it's Absolutely. because there's the the system in itself can't handle the amount of people that are coming in right now and the amount of tr providers that are available to help were shortened. Absolutely. So, the, you know, a lot of yeah. people point out, do something about this addiction problem. And um, I'm looking at it being, you know, you know, deep in those spaces myself. I start looking at, well, what about the, the rest of humanity, you know, and getting back to, you know, the systemic systems is I wanted to find an intervention model that I could really look further down the road and not, you know, because most intervention models teach you that the person's an alcoholic and you need to convince them to go to treatment around that ideal. But the problem with that is I'm not a physician, mm -hmm. nor am I a medical doctor, mm -hmm. nor am I 
a doctor that gives people diagnosis. So if my job is to help them make progress and engage with them during a motivational or transformational intervention, my job is to help you get into a space where you can get the help, not tell you who you need to be or who you are to get there. And most of the intervention models, when I was looking for systemic training, even though I had already had this clinical and educational experience. So I started looking at the Milan Institute, Milan, Italy, that developed systemic family intervention with families and found uh, Dr. Ruelas. He's a, he's a DO and a PhD, and he started the Ericksonian Institute in Southern California, and he also trained at the Milan Institute. And I found him to go do training with because he was somebody that I could truly say that looks at people from a biological, a neurological, a psychological, and a behavioral perspective right, from right being able to do all of that testing and engage with the person as a whole, because people generally will say we deal with the whole person. I was like, when's the last time you did a nutrient test on your client? Exactly. Uh, we don't do that here. Yeah. So then you have to time out because you can't tell me that you're not, and not from a, a balanced diet perspective, from your system as a human being, right. being able to run, not whether you should have more food or not food. It's more of, you know, looking at it from a medical perspective and, Almost every client that I work with hasn't had that kind of treatment. Absolutely. So really, I... Yeah, I was just mm -hmm. going to say, like, a lot of the things that you're talking about in terms of um, how we have pathologized consumption and, and just the, the terminology that we use, like addict and alcoholic, and um, how that has just reinforced an internal ailment rather than uh, more of a coping mechanism that has gone awry. And if we're right. only looking at it as, okay, there's this dysfunction in who you are as a person because you are an addict, it's not going to foster hope. It's not going to foster the ability to um, engage in a more, as you're saying, like holistic approach to understanding why you're consuming. And, and that's where people do have relapse. And that's where people do really struggle with being able to have long-term recovery because they're looking at it from um, a, a different perspective than this much more human, holistic, truly holistic perspective. So I'm thrilled to hear mm -hmm. that that's where um, you're headed in this story. So I just wanted to pop that in and, and then let you keep going because I'm, I'm enthralled, so. Yeah, well, you know, you know, when you're bringing up the 12-step thing, you know, the, the big issue with most people that are consuming is around being in healthy community. Mm -hmm. And really the only, you know, and this is where the rub comes, the only really healthy recovery community from a terminology standpoint is the 12-step community. You know, you have other community groups, but they don't have the fellowship model that the 12-step model has. Which is necessary. If you actually get... Yeah, if yeah. you get into the book of any one of these 12-step fellowships, most of what the community communicates isn't what is in the book. And because of their structure, which is genius, geniusly done, right. there's millions of people to be there. But in order to get into the inner part of the group, you have to accept the model, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where the rub comes because people don't want to accept the model, but there's no other community for them to go to. Right. Not that there's no other community, but it's not so sustainable if you go, let's say, you know, I, I live on the West Coast, but what happens if you go back to, you know, you know, New Mexico somewhere? Yeah. Can you find the meeting that, can you find the recovery model that we taught you here or wherever you're, so the treatment providers themselves are also in a dilemma because that language is taught in school. And it's under the licensure in which you get to help people. So if you're a licensed person and you don't use that language and it don't account for the care of the person, you can lose your license. So exactly. it's almost, it's a systemic issue in the system of care in, in and of itself. So how do we help people not get caught in that language? We start moving towards solutions. Like I tell people when we're doing interventions from the beginning, this is a process, not an event. And I'm going to help you be able to have content and information every step of the way of the process so you don't get lost in all the pain and suffering of what you can't take care of. So what happens with families is they think it's their responsibility to take care of their loved one. 
when it's actually not their responsibility, it's their loved one's responsibility. Right. And if they can't let that go, we get into these other conflicts. Are you helping them out or are you holding them back? Right. And, and that is uh, going to be more in detail in my upcoming book, Enable Your Life and Your Loved Ones Too. Enable Your Life and Your Loved Ones Too. I like that. Very good. Cool. Well, the, and, and, well, the, the, the idea around enable your life is, you know, there are these terms that people use that in recovery, like just the term recovery itself or the term sobriety itself or the term uh, um, enable itself. All of those are positive, motivating terms if you look them up in the dictionary, not because a particular group has decided that they want to adjunct the language and change it to suit their needs. But for the rest of the hundreds of millions or billions of people on the planet, the term enable is really to help somebody move towards the solution um, in a good way. So I would say there might be one strand of enablement that I wouldn't tell somebody to do. Like I wouldn't enable you to help your loved one be in more pain. I wouldn't say that you should enable your loved one to be in more suffering. Right. Right. If you want them to come out, you know, sometimes to help, somebody come out of their pain that they're going to have to work their way out right and instead of giving them a path that causes causes them no accountability or or giving them a path that has no life vest as they call it you know you have to come into the middle to be able to help somebody really be able to move forward and you can structure that in an intervention you know people say hold boundaries i I would say build resiliency (laughs) you know because You know, and, you know, a boundary holds me back or holds me in. Resiliency gives me the strength to work through things, right? And, you know, this information that I'm sharing with you now wasn't available to us 15 years ago. This wasn't a a conversation that was really in the space. So, you know, I'm more in how can I help other providers and other people that are like, like you and me helping saving people's lives on a daily basis? How can I enhance your life so you can have more access to help more people? You know, because that's a, the bigger issue in treatment is how well the treatment providers get their own help because it's not easy work. Absolutely. Right. And it's not, you know, people aren't always happy with their results. Absolutely. And, and so for you to, you know, incorporate more specific language into the work that you're doing follows a lot of the training that I've received um, as a as a marriage and family therapist around narrative therapy and how important mm-hmm. it is to be mindful of the language that we're using and the stories that we're telling ourselves. And just to note back in the beginning when we first started talking of how important it is to you to be solution focused and to be looking at the positive and, and, and holding hope because that kind of language really does foster the sense that we can recover and that it's possible and that mm-hmm. long-term recovery is um, available and accessible to us. Um, is that narrative language something that you were trained in or is that something that you have just discovered in your own work is, has shown to be more successful in the, in the relationships that you've had with clients and with um, other coworkers and peers and family? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a combination of, of, of experience educate, and education. You know, originally when I was working at Therapeutic Community back in the late 90s, mm-hmm. the, the language was more transformative behavior language than anything else. So you wouldn't call the person an addict or an alcoholic. Right. You wouldn't even identify the person in that way. You know, you, you would teach people how to adjust their tone or their intent, you know, a lot of the, a lot of people, you know, and this is the reason why I said earlier that I don't get into the details of the story, because when I went from downtown LA to working in Malibu in 2000, so 20 years ago, that was before there was, you know, the field of treatment that we're in today. Right. Those were two huge populations of people. And when I woke up to the reality of that, I was going from uh, the Billboard Music Awards in in Las Vegas, going to New York on a private plane with musicians and actors and chefs that were taking care of us, and I realized that all humanity has the same emotional state, and how we get there comes from different perspective. Because I was in a lot of fear because I only had a language. 
that was around telling my story of where I had come from so you could relate to me. Right. And then I'm in this I'm in this position where I can't relate to them, but I got to still help. So how could I resolve this, right? And so that was where it was started, but then I started getting into other avenues of how could I enhance my communication skill because all I have is this story and this education that talks about the problem. So I went become a, a master's life coach and a business coach and a personal development coach and, you know, spent a number of years doing these trainings that were 10 to 15 days long, eight to 10 hours a day, and you will start crying and getting upset, but really it's a cathartic process Absolutely. that relieves you of all of the language that's holding you back, no right. matter who you are. Like, you know, you know, I know physicians that come out of school or people with their psychology degrees that have been spending six or eight or 10 years in school that still are suffering from what they originally went to school for in the first place to try to resolve the issue, which is, right. you know, most practitioners go through. Right. Um, they still need support and enhancement, but they've been working so long to get their career together then they got to spend the next 10 years in their career and still need help. So we try to look at how, how can we best help everybody? And what I do is I continue to get training. You know, I, you know, you know, we're now in a position where there's all kinds of different ways to receive healings. You could, you know, there's different medicines that can be used from traditional aspects, from di different indigenous groups, from different parts of the world that we have now have access to. Right. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a big group right now, especially as it relates to psychedelics and alternative care. There's a big group of people that are saying that this needs to be more available to the people. So we're, you know, it's, it's going through the legal system, but I honestly believe that I'm still alive today and I'm in my focus and I'm able to be a family member and care for my children and care for my relationships and do all of that. A lot had to do with using psychedelics coming out of that last relapse or that near death overdose. Um, I, I didn't tell you this part of the story, but when I came out of that, I was more suicidal than I went in. And, and, you know, because the, the pressure in the psychological pain that I was in was worse than anything I had ever experienced before at the time. And during my coaching training, what, I, what did I learn? I learned that psychological pain and physical pain get processed in the subconscious mind in the same way. Right. So I wasn't able to differentiate between a broken leg or a broken heart. Right. And I didn't have that content back then. Back then, all I was was an alcoholic. Right. Right. And so and so now that we've learned all of this, this different stuff, you start having access to some of these me medicines that are psychedelic. And of course, you know, people are going to abuse everything. But just because you're going to abuse something doesn't give me the doesn't give people the right to hold it back from somebody that might save their lives. Because I know plenty of people that are in recovery from using psychedelics that are not in the abstinence based recovery that really saved their lives, that were hardcore drug addicts. And they're really not accepted in the system because the community uh, fellowship, like what we said, if you go back to the, right. you know, I know plenty of people in 12-step fellowship that use psychedelics that have to hide it because they'll be shamed by their community because of, you know, it's a weird thing because the, the community itself says, you know, people are shaming us for having drug problems, but then the community that best supports them also shames people if you consume. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic we're in. I think it has a lot more to do with like, the intent behind the use and, and what other factors are going mm. on in sure. your um, experience. I mean, and, and this might be for another topic, but, you know, people consume alcohol regularly who wouldn't qualify themselves and wouldn't describe themselves as alcoholics, but their intent to sure. consume substances to mask the feelings or to, like, you know, relax from the end of the day is it, that in of itself is unhealthy. And that in of itself is a dysfunction that needs to be worked through. But then on the other side, if you have somebody who's in recovery um, from using substances um, to mask so much so that they've been, you know, deemed addicted, but then in within the recovery are still using some form of substance to heal um mm -hmm. is is kind of a bit of a paradox but it is clearer to be understood with intent right am i 
using psychedelics to mask and hide the feelings that I'm having or am I using them to grow and to heal and to expand my understanding of who I am and my experiences um, and I think mm -hmm. the the latter has definitely started to be more accepted I think in the in the large scale of mental health and uh, wellness field maybe not necessarily in the more structured um, 12 step programs. Um, but I, I yeah. liked that you are touching on this because I think this is a really, um, at, at least from my perspective and certainly here on the East coast is, um, it's still taboo. It's still taboo to accept someone yeah. to be in recovery, but well, also yeah. use medication or other healthy or something like that. Substances, yeah. Well, I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day about that because, you know, let's just use, you know, one of the 12-step programs. If I'm in the 12-step program and I'm an abstinence-based and I'm clean, quote-unquote, right. Right. and I got somebody across from me that's, quote-unquote, on their own medication because it's prescribed by their doctor, and they're, let's say, nodding out in the meeting, I'm starting to get triggered and want to get high over that. The right. safety was that you could go to these meetings and there was a, a, a mutual agreement that we weren't consuming. Right. Right. And, and the more focus that is on the negative, you know, I'm not taken away from people that are suffering because I was too one of those people, but I got to tell you, you got to be accountable and responsible. If you gave me permission to have a disease that was out of my control to justify my behavior when I was in that space, I would lose my mind and, 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 you know, I needed accountability. Absolutely. The system has changed so much. I wouldn't necessarily say that to somebody who is suffering in pain on drugs has been hurt and over and over again. And they're in that depth of suffering. They might only be able to identify with somebody that's an addict. Right. They might only be able to say yes to a community of people that says, you know what? We're just like you. We're just addicts. Right. You know, and sometimes, that is the only thing you can't hear it from somebody like me is using all this lollygag language, I would call it. <laughs> I'm now I'm now the person that uses as well. You know, don't talk to me like that. People would say, don't talk to me like that. Okay, what am I talking? You're, you're pitching me. I said, well, okay, so, all right. So how would you like me to speak? <laughs> right. Because I, and I would, I make adjustments for people that can't have that language you know they need something that's more relatable something that they can understand because most people that are suffering through consumption have uh, low self-esteem they don't have any high value of themselves you absolutely have to meet them where they're at right where you, you where they're at where they're at in their so, process so, for sure right so denying that a 12-step model would work to anybody doesn't help them right. systemically because no. you know if, if you, you know, the other thing that happened was nobody gave me permission to move on with my recovery from uh, a community-based support system. So in other words, none of my friends, none of my, my sponsor, none of my, my community members, nobody supported or thought that it would be a good idea that you stop going to a 12-step program. Yeah. I didn't need anybody's permission because the effects of that last near-death overdose was so painful that I knew for sure that I had to get back to the deep of the truth, which was I never could really accept the terminology from the 12-step programs in the beginning. I accepted it because I couldn't deny the effects of my consumption that turned into behaviors that had adverse effects itself. Right. Right. So, so I could say to myself, look, I understand all this language. I can't abandon one job before I have another or one recovery model before I have another. But I no longer need to treat myself like this. Mm -hmm. I no longer need to lie to myself by saying to everybody else that I really feel about myself in this way. And I really never really felt like I was a diseased, sick individual. I really felt like I was a wonderful, loving human, in, uh, a wonderful, loving individual that was a human that had gone through some really deep trials of suffering, you know, you know, foster home, physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental abuse, you know. Um, just bat all of this kind of deep, deep rooted conflict that in, in, in the 12 step model, I tried to share some of that with some of my sponsors, but really they, they, they weren't, uh, experienced enough or had enough understanding of how to deal with somebody that was in such a pain. You know, when you tell you you do these fifth steps, when you tell them the fifth step, your sponsor shouldn't be crying. 
and you're looking at him because he's crying because he's experiencing the pain that he requested that you write down. And it's the same pain that I would see in a psychologist's eyes when I was 11. Yeah. They would be crying because of the experiences. And I just would, you know, I could go back right now to 11-year-old, that psychologist. I was looking at her thinking, there's no way you're going to come close to resolving this. You're sitting here crying. Right. Right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and to, to me, being 11 years old, having had that much experience of understanding emotional states, it was, you know, it was a hard thing because, you know, you come in conflict with a higher power or God or whatever language you use to be outside of yourself and be in connection with a, a higher value. Um, it was confusing as a child. If, if there was a God, how, how is this okay? Right. How is this something that you... And so when I come out of that and I work with people now, I, I mostly talk about emotional states, not about the details of which got me there. You know, because we're, we're dealing with populations of people that are still having the same depressions, the same anxieties, the same pain, the, the, the same acceptance feelings. And their detailed experience, you know, this was another thing that 12-step got, you know, taught me was not everybody's going to have your same experience. So if, if I'm sharing my experience every day, how many people have I heard say, you know, I had to lie about some of my stories. I didn't feel bad enough to even be a part of this group. So people right. would come up with these stories. And even though I had some pretty rich stories, I made up stories myself to feel more welcome, right? right. So I would come up with these stories that weren't even true. And, and people around me would know it, but they wouldn't pull me up on it uh, because they knew I was still young and I needed to learn. You know, years later, I'd say, yeah, I remember that one day you saw this thing, it was a lie. And I, and I had gotten to the point, it was like, well, it wasn't a lie. I just really felt unworthy or not welcome i felt like i needed a deeper story and you, no one said it to me then so i thought it worked so if it was a lie somebody should have brought me up right away not wait for years later i was I've been still lying about that story so i started <laughs> laughing at me but you know you build these these relationships in this 12-step community this is why i don't you know i love 12-step communities i think there's a, a higher value in communication that we've learned as humans that should be more implemented in some of those structures but, you know, I'm not a member of those communities, so uh, I'm not really in a position to change their terminology. But I hope somebody, some people in there do something about it because they're desperate. Uh, an adjustment in the language is desperately needed for such a successful program Absolutely. that was built in 1935. Yeah. It, it, it deserves an engagement to change the terminology that we are now aware of as, as, as a people that could be more valuable in the long-term health. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. The, you know, on the 12-step thing is the 12, you know, 12-step community members really are there trying to fight for their, their belief system. And, you know, I was just talking to a guy yesterday about it is most of the people that are complaining about 12-step are complaining that they don't have access to another program. And there's nobody really coming together to build such a program that is so available around the world. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, it's back to the fellowship thing, right? And what to do. So what do I tell people that don't work well with 12-step communities is we start building on things that you can to start engaging you in processes and communities that you can be around, including accepting that sometimes you need to be in a stable community before you're able to grow. You don't necessarily want to stay there. Nobody really wants to have their first job. And most people's first car isn't the one that they're dreaming about. And most people's first relationship isn't going to be the one that lasts, right? So yeah. all of those things are fine to have a beginning process that needs to be adjusted, right? So yeah. we think that, you know, if you're able to, I, I honestly believed and I still believe now, a real good way to learn how to live a better life is to be able to be abstinent for a frame of time. Absolutely, and yeah. And in the event that you're you're not able or not interested in being abstinent, then you should have access to the resources because not everybody's brain can handle total abstinence, especially if you're coming from total consumption. I just got a call for an intervention for a 65-year-old male who tried to commit suicide, and they put him in the hospital, and he convinced everybody he didn't want to do it, and he got out and did it right away again because he had back problems. He doesn't like to take um, the medication. Right. And he's in so much pain, the only resolve was trying to kill himself, in which he failed at twice. So this guy's 
really in a deep depression because he's trying to get out of the right and and so the talk was let's make him not consume anything at all and he must be an addict i said well Let's slow that you know, answer down, right? Like, let's uh, let's review right. well, that. Well, let, let's 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 let, let's get into a solution and start giving him hope. Yeah. <laughs> Not telling him he needs treatment because he's got a disease. You know, when he's already in a depressed state, he wants to kill himself. You right. know, you might want to say, you know, maybe maybe the the road can get smoother from here, and maybe we can get into a solution, and maybe I can sit there and be quiet with him for ten minutes. Yeah, and just listen. So he finally says, "Why are, why aren't you saying anything?" Uh. I said, well, I just got here and I really want to just honor you and your humanity and be grateful to you and thankful for you to even allow me to be in the room and just broke down crying. And the reason why I said such a thing is because I remember how horrific it was to have everybody in the room, their own pain oozing out of them onto me, acting like they loved me, or maybe feeling like they loved me, but really they were passing their own pain of my loss onto me. And it was just horrific. Nobody could just be quiet and be there with me. And instead of me trying to talk my way through this intervention, which really was a conversation, you know, this is why we call it transformational intervention model, is we're really trying to engage you in a process for you to change and transform into the person you want to be. And for me, not to conclude who you can be or limit who you can be, but more enhance who you can be and what you can move towards. And that starts from our initial initial conversation. Just honoring somebody that's suffering so bad takes you so much further for themselves. Like, look, somebody's honoring me. Right, and I learned how to hold space from doing ceremonies in the Amazon with medicines when people are really having these cathartic effects of things coming out of them, you know, the time is not to converse, the time is to hold space, what they call hold space. Right. And allow the person to free themselves to release some of this pressure that they have without you needing to uh, interject. And, yeah. you know, having done hundreds, literally, of those, of those medicine ceremonies, what I found is humanity is in a desperate need of more healers or people that can come around and help you release that. And, you know, even in that, you know, I see a lot of people going to go, we were talking about psychedelics earlier, that go do psychedelics, and they also come back to a worse state than they were in the beginning, because they get opened up um, from an emotional perspective that they're more vulnerable to change, you know, and you could be vulnerable to change in a positive way, right? So it's more open and available to things, but you could also be uh, more open to if you go back to your environment and let's say you're in an unhealthy environment you know a lot of people have these conflicts I just got a call the other day some girl went down to Costa Rica and she came back and she had a psychiatric breakdown and ended up in the hospital wow. and you know that I got called for the same case originally and they didn't want to plan and strategize so she came up with a plan herself and came back and the history around this girl was how she was getting by and who was paying for her to get by and the acts that she needed to do to get by to be an important person and living in Hollywood and having all the resources she had was deepening her suffering and she went down to a place to try to relieve it in one weekend and it broke all the way came all the way loose because everything she's doing is causing harm to her. And so she she did she went from being able to have everything encapsulated and okay with all of the behavior to it was wide open and it was now killing her and she had a psychiatric breakdown. So somebody like that, I would, you know, just like I said originally, unless you want to prepare uh, before and engage in a process before you go do it and engage in a process after you go do it, you might it might be better suitable for you to find somebody else because we've experienced too many people had adverse effects and you need something in the beginning and at the end and during the middle for that matter. You know, a lot of times uh, people have conflicts in the middle, but you know, we're, we're finding that there's more resources to help people than we had originally considered. And you know, what we're hopeful for is, uh, you know, a lot of physicians and a lot of people that are in pretty good places, they're starting to share. We have some, MAPS is a really good system that's doing this uh, for therapists or training therapists. And, you know, people are saying, well, you're just using drugs. Well, no, these people are dying and the medications that they are are subduing them from having any hope because the medications in and of itself is 
got a 50-50 chance over time of working. And although you might use it for stabilization, right. it, it generally doesn't have long-term effects. Yeah. Or it does, but not, not necessarily in the positive way all the time. And not necessarily in the way of which people want to live. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with clients who um, either haven't started medication because of, of what they've heard or they've had medication in the past that resulted in feeling no emotion or feeling numb which led them to feel more unstable and unhealthy and unhappy in life um and then more apprehensive to to go back to just to stabilize you know and i think it's fantastic that you are not only discovering but then applying and sharing your wisdom about all of these other avenues and the, the value of the solution focus and the value of um, you know sitting and holding space for someone and honoring their their humanity and honoring their pain it's just it sounds like such a beautiful process um, oh man it is it yeah. Kat, it is so it's so wonderful when you're able to be there for somebody and be able to have access Ricard yeah. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story and for being the human that you are really story aside just as you said like really coming from a position of solution oriented um and being hopeful emulating that in your own self and then giving that to others i i am just beyond grateful for that we need more people like you in this world and Keep spreading the word. Keep doing what you're doing and Absolutely. learning. And um, I will most definitely have to have you back on if you're willing. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to it, Kat, for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Join me on the next episode of Unfuck Your Head as we continue to build a community where understanding human health is at the forefront of real change. Don't forget to hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram at Unfuck Your Head Podcast. You can also check out upcoming podcasts, my blog, and ways to contribute to our mission by visiting our website at unfuckyourhead.org. Fuck your head.